Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 11. After Hours with Christine Norville. Good morning. My name is David, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season we're reading Till We Have Faces. However, today is an After Hours episode, an episode where I interview someone from the C.S. Lewis community, and today I'm talking to Christine Norval. I think Christine first came onto my radar via Twitter, as I was hunting around for C.S. Lewis people on the internet. And she then won a competition that we had where we were offering Justin Wiggins' book, Surprised by Agape. But who is she? Here's her bio. Christine Norville is a classical Christian educator, a voracious reader, a wife, and mother of three boys. She graduated from Oral Roberts University with a degree in English education, and from Faulkner University with a master's in humanities. She taught high school literature at a classical Christian school for 11 years, and is the author of Till We Have Faces, A Reading Companion. Whether she's addressing her students, other educators, parents, or book lovers, Christine loves to equip and inspire. She believes that from ancient history to contemporary literature, the humanities reveal universal truths about faith, relationships, and the human experience. She's passionate about examining these connections and discovering the God-given gifts that come to life through story, both in fiction and in real life. She is a senior contributor for the Imaginative Conservative and also regularly writes for websites like The Classical Thistle, Intellectual Takeout, Story Warren, Voglin View, and Poema Institute. Christine Norville, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you so much. Now, here at Pints with Jack, we do a drink of the week and a quote of the week. And since we're doing this interview very early in the morning before I go to work, I'm naturally just having a light breakfast scotch because, you know, we're not crazy here. <laughs> no, nah, I'm not. I'm having a cup of Trader Joe's mint watermelon black tea, which a friend recently gave me. It's, it's a little strange, but I quite like it. And for the quote of the week, since Christine is a learned individual concerning all things classical, I thought this passage from Till We Have Faces was appropriate. This is where Orwell writes in her book, it may someday happen that a traveller from the Greek lands will again lodge in this palace and read the book. Then he will talk of it among the Greeks, where there is great freedom of speech, even about the gods themselves. Perhaps their wise men will know whether my complaint is right, or whether the god could have defended himself if he had made an answer. So, you are our educated Greekling, so cheers. <laughs> <laughs> cheers. <laughs> I'm just straight up French roast coffee this morning, so it's early yet. <laughs> well, you're a couple of hours ahead of me, so uh, I'm, I'm probably going to need yeah. a second cup of tea before this is over. Now, your bio described yourself as a classical Christian educator. So just to fill in the background, for those not familiar with classical education, what does that mean? Well, classical education points back to traditions well, literally as far back as the Greek philosophers. So if you trace how Socrates taught Plato, who taught Aristotle, and um, how they worked with their students and interactions and um, questioning, always questioning in every single subject, um, it developed a method that has continued literally over thousands of years. And um, by the time of... Uh, medieval era and the centuries after, um, it was very common in a number of church communities, particularly the Catholic who have maintained the tradition of teaching, specifically um, in the Christian aspect, um, 
that each subject is taught through a Christian worldview. And so there's the tradition, the training, um, the truth that's conveyed. That's a simple method someone explained to me years ago, truth, tradition, and training. <laughs> that um, It's a simple way to look at classical education without getting too stuck on verbiage. <laughs> <laughs> And your bio also mentioned that you're a speaker. Uh, on what kind of subjects do you speak? Sure. Well, just as an English teacher, I speak to my loves usually. <laughs> so um, I speak at conferences on uh, everyday things like improving our grammar to um, novels that I teach and love, um, how to teach particular things. And yet I'm also many times invited to speak on devotional matters. So um, typically I speak at Christian conferences, but not always. So um, there's a range, but almost everything ties back to what I teach and read and do. Well, let's talk about the book, which is consuming my life at the moment, Till We Have Faces. <laughs> Uh, but actually, before that, uh, what was your history with C.S. Lewis? When did you start reading Jack? Well, my sister and I read pretty much anything we could get our hands on in our school and our city library growing up. Um, we read all the time. We we're very limited on TV viewing. <laughs> so we would exchange books. And I, I'm not quite sure what age I was or what grade I was in, but my sister had gotten a hold of a very ragtag copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I said, this was wonderful. I stayed up last night. You read it. <laughs> and I did, like within one day. And then when she found out, she didn't even know it was part of the series. I hadn't either. Uh, Lewis is completely new to our household. Um, she went back to the library and asked around and um, checked out the rest of the series. And we proceeded to devour them pretty quickly. <laughs> And in publication order as well, which makes me very happy. I don't know. <laughs> I have no recollection. All I know is that we really delighted in the stories, but um, we just talked about them and about the characters and what was happening um, and what we didn't understand a little bit. And that was my first exposure. So um, it wasn't in a class or a book club or <laughs> it was simply for, uh, this was a wonderful thing to read. And out of all of Lewis's works, what are your particular favorites? That is actually a hard question because <laughs> it's hard to pick even the top three. Um, I, I often compare it to picking your favorite child. People say it's difficult, <laughs> but I think in their heart of hearts, they actually know their favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, there are a number of essays that are my absolute favorites, but if I had to pick like... Um, Book, I would definitely start with Mere Christianity because it has always remained just a solid conversational piece with anyone um, that's exposed to it and has read it before. And it can mean so many different things to different people. It's It always produces fascinating conversations. Um, Till We Have Faces is at the top for the fiction for me, <laughs> obviously. Glad to hear it. <laughs> So, and if I just had to say, like, my favorite essay overall, it's probably on three ways of writing for children, mm -hmm. or even the simple one, sometimes fairy stories may say best what's to be said. Um, there's so many poignant ones that uh, they're just so eloquent and so understandable and so, so relatable. <laughs> it's hard to do. Here on Pints with Jack, what we typically do is read one of the Narnian Chronicles at the end of each season. And my plan is, once we've finished Narnia, 
we'll take a couple of essays at the end of each season and start working our way through those. Yes. Yeah, you have plenty to choose from. This is true. Every now and again, somebody says, why don't you also start a podcast on G.K. Chesterton? I said, as soon as we've discussed everything that Lewis has read, I promise you we'll start it. Yeah, don't I remember that you said you planned out 15 seasons already? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, that, that was, those were the only other things off the top of my head that I want to discuss. <laughs> but zooming in now on Till We Have Faces, what was your history with that? Uh, you said you've been a teacher. Did you teach to a class? Well, here's here's the unique thing. Um, when I was hired to help build um, a classical high school and develop curriculum and all of that, um, I was told to throw in a C.S. Lewis novel to the ninth grade, which in classical tradition is the ancient chronology. Um, you do four-year cycles in classical education, so you go ancient, medieval, uh, Reformation, Renaissance, and then modern times every four years, and you repeat. So ninth grade was ancient, and um, <laughs> I was like, oh, hey, I've never read this book till we have faces, but it's about an ancient time. What do you guys think of this? And no one else in my teacher committee at the moment had read it, and um, it got thrown in. And I had never read it, and I had never taught it. Wow. <laughs> How's that for jumping in? It's like, sure, this seems like a good idea. Sure, I can do this. <laughs> so um, one of the unique situations then is, as a teacher, you always want your reading to be fresh. So you really can discuss things um, that you've assigned to the students overnight as they're reading a few chapters a night, and you're discussing things. And I'm trying to stay ahead of them, and yet I am overwhelmed with what do I pay attention to, <laughs> this, and how do I tell them what to pay attention to? <laughs> this is my problem at the moment, because as we're reading through Till We Have Faces, I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm just seeing all the things that's like, oh, this sounds interesting. This could be important. Right. So if you're 14 and 15, yeah. this this is the beauty of the process. Um, many students at that age... Uh, either gender, doesn't matter, are very literal readers. So I found out as I was teaching it the first few years that the first four or five chapters as students were, oh, I like this. Oh, this is interesting. But somewhere around chapter five, they were like, what's really going on? Who is this Orwell? What, <laughs> what kind of person is she? You know, and they start to dislike her. Mm -hmm. And it starts to skew when they see how many pages are left. <laughs> it starts to skew their perspective. And um, one of the things is probably going to sound, uh, I'm not sure, too analytical on my part. But I found that if I did not introduce the spiritual plane by chapter three or four and let them know that they need to be looking for Christian parallels or spiritual parallels, um, it didn't work very well unless I literally said it. I had to say, what do you think this could represent in your Christian walk? What type of person do you think Lewis is trying to show us? Um, once I did that and was just blunt <laughs> and direct about it, it, it really helped to propel things. And so it's it's a fascinating thing because it happens in the book, too. You move from literal things and do we trust what Oral is telling us, of course, to the more imaginative and the spiritual side of life. 
And you literally have to tell new readers who it's their first exposure and in their young minds that this is what this book is doing. There's this level and there's also this level and there's probably more, but be aware of it. And that, that seemed to get us over the hump mm. so we could finish the book and continue to look for meaning. Yeah, because I found that this book more than any other is the one that people tend to stumble over. I met yes. quite a lot of people who really like Lewis and I said, and then I came to Till We Have Faces, and I just don't know. I, I don't get it. So it's, it's good to know that that happens to uh, younger folks as well with fresher brains. Yeah, it does. And even then, once we would finish, um, many students would say, well, I think I like that. <laughs> and there's hesitation. Some students would go, this was wonderful. And then others were like, I really hated that, Mrs. Norville. <laughs> so you're right. I don't really care what age you read it. Um, and I had many parents tell me the same thing. Oh, I remember trying to read that book. Yeah, I never got it. So um, I, I think it goes across every age group that way. So given that some people struggle with this book, it's really inappropriate that we talk about your reading companion. So <laughs> what motivates you to write this book? Uh, hearing those same complaints for 10 years, <laughs> I was like, is there anything out there that is trying to address um, the need? What is there out there? And um, funnily enough, I attended a family reunion <laughs> and I was talking about this and the idea that maybe I should write something. That's good. A moment ago when you said you, you went and attended a family reunion, I was expecting, and then we were performing a sacrifice where we took my sister up on a mountain and tied her to a tree. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, it, well, what was funny is I have a cousin who's an illustrator, and he wasn't there, but everyone was saying, you really need to hire him. He could illustrate the cover for you. You really should should invite him to do that. And I was like, I'm I'm not too sure because he's a horror illustrator. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I reached out to him after that reunion and lots of conversations. And he's like, I've never read this book. Would you just send it to me? I was like, sure. So I did. And a week or two later he emailed back and said, this was really different. <laughs> and I said, so are you interested? And he said, yes. He said, let me draw you some sketches for scenes I felt were pivotal and you tell me what you like. Mm -hmm. And we proceeded from there. And then the cover of The Reading Companion was his top pick. He's like, I think this was monumental when the king brings Oral to his mirror and says, look at that. Would you give this <laughs> to the brute, really? <laughs> It's the part of the book that I have disliked and liked the most, I think I would probably say. It's just so horrible. And particularly the note that he says, and that the king held me there for like a full minute. Wasn't enough just to make a point, hey girl, you're ugly. It's like, look at you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, the process continued and I wrote it over that summer. And then at the end of that summer, wouldn't you know, um, the C.S. Lewis scholar that was invited to speak at our school and our back to school training with teachers and um, parents and students was Dr. Jerry Root. Ah. <laughs> and he spoke on many things. C.S. Lewis, really relatable to every level teacher from those who teach kindergarten through the high school and 
he um, was being hosted by a good friend of mine at the school. And so she made sure that uh, at the end of several of his talks, he got to speak with me. Mm-hmm. And his first question to me was, so who do you identify with most, Christine? <laughs> <laughs> and as you toss your hair, oh, psyche. <laughs> <laughs> And then as I told him about what I was trying to do, he said, hey, listen, let me give you the name of my publisher and and let's see if we can get this book out there just for regular people, mm-hmm. not for the scholars, not for the academics, just for people who are like, I really do want to try to understand the C.S. Lewis book. And so um, I went from there and found out that <laughs> unless you teach a university course, publishers... <laughs> don't really want to publish you. (laughs) So I ended up over the process of about uh, nine months or so um, choosing to self-publish because I just knew it needed to come out. So, And it really ties in with what Matt and I are trying to do in this podcast because I had the same thing even when people were reading me Christianity and there were still things that they stumbled over and references Mm -hmm. that they didn't understand and they didn't know where to go and find out information for it. Right. Um, So just, I don't think... I think very often it just takes a little bit of a little bit of help for people to get into Lewis and to start seeing the whole big picture. Yeah, I agree. And I'm still learning. There's still so many things I notice every time I'm reading it. Even as I follow it through with you guys on this season, I'm going, oh, <laughs> I didn't <laughs> notice that. I wouldn't have thought of that. So, And that's one of the delights of getting to teach it year after year, that it just never gets dull. It, as my students are exposed to it for the first time, um, and I'm sure Matt's taking great delight in your exposure to the first time. Uh, he is. <laughs> it, it's to say it's the same surprisingness that C.S. Lewis refers to when he talks about the delight of rereading things. It's mm-hmm. like there's this element. There are these layers that in different times of life as you read it, and I get to be around people who it's new to all the time. So, Even when I'm listening to the episode that we publish each week, I listen to it in the car on my way to work. The number of times I'm listening to it, and it's like, oh, that makes me think of something else. I should have said this. And I didn't see this parallel before. <laughs> yes. Now, in your book, you begin by retelling the original myth. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's better for people to know the original myth prior to reading Till We Have Faces? Because I know quite a lot of people, it's, I don't want to spoil the story. I don't want to know what happens. Right, right. And uh, I'm, on a fi- I'm on the fence on that. I, mm. I introduce it to my students because they know the myth already. Um, in the classical tradition, um, they do two different years with Greek and Roman um, literature and mythology and all of that. And so um, they know it. They just don't remember the details. It, it may not be fresh. And so I find that if we read um, the full narration, um, they'll remember the details as you can see what Lewis is doing and what he's choosing to use and what he's choosing to drop, what he's adding to and um, that type of thing. And that sort of adds to our discussion from time to time. Um, But then if I were new to it and I didn't know the myth, I, I think I would also choose just to ignore the myth and just read the story for itself. And maybe read the myth after? At the moment, I haven't read it. I've got it penciled in that I'm going to read it at the end of part one. Because I think probably by then, the stuff will have happened that it was primarily based on. 
<laughs> and so then it'll still be fresh enough that I can then go back and see the alterations that Lewis made. Right. And I, if I'm remembering right and like, well, I have a first edition American <laughs> and at the end, <laughs> as we know, the British and the American editions are quite different, but uh, I've uh, lived here for long enough. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm American in too many ways. <laughs> but at the end of the book is where it includes, um, goodness, it's not called an abridgment, an appendix, notes from C.S. Lewis. Yes, something like that. It's in the same in my modern edition. Yeah, and then it has the reference to um, Apuleius's myth. I'm not even sure how to say his name, but it has a segment of the story included. Mm-hmm. So he put it at the end, or maybe the publishers did. I'm not sure. Well, they also put the Chronicles of Narnia in chronological order, so... <laughs> I'm a bit disillusioned on that front. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I am really interested to, I haven't heard of anybody doing what I'm trying to do, to read part one, then read the myth, and then finish it. Uh, so, I don't know. Maybe at the end of the book, I'll, I'll take a poll from people and see, see which people thought was best. Yeah. Now, you spoke about learning more about this book each time you teach it and hearing from other people. Uh, when we were emailing in anticipation of this interview, you said that there's a second edition in the works. Yes. What's motivating that? <laughs> and when will it be released? I laugh so that I do not cry. <laughs> and that's because <laughs> of my critics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, it's fun in that at least when my book came out, there was not a cliff notes or a super summary or... These other publishers who had summarized the book or created outlines or um, cheat sheets, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I've had a few critics from what I could tell from their comments. They're probably college students and they're supposed to write a paper. <laughs> Your book didn't write my paper for me. I know. And so they're a little upset. And that one's laughable. But the harsher ones um, usually pop up on Goodreads where people are C.S. Lewis fans. And so they pick up my book and they read it and they're like, I didn't learn anything new. This just told the story again and added a few thoughts. That's it. And um, I guess I was like, yeah, that was the point. That's why it says it's a beginning companion. It's not uh, this, I don't know, definitive work like Andrew Lazo is creating right now. Um, and also that's probably a good 20 years off at this current rate. So. Yeah. <laughs> So um, what I am doing this round is I am incorporating um, pieces from The Four Loves and Surprised by Joy and a few of the other essays and um, quoting directly from Shakel's work, um, The Reason and Imagination in C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. and um, footnoting along the way and tying some of these threads together. Um because I think there's definitely, I, I underestimated, or I just made an assumption that anybody would appreciate it. <laughs> and um, I found out that people want more. And so um, I'm tying these in without hopefully being too academic. And then I've added study questions and questions about theme mm -hmm. and symbols and things like that at the end of each chapter. So if it, if it turns into more of a study guide, that's okay with me, but I, I think apparently um, that there's a whole segment of the readership that I didn't realize would actually read it and um, seem to want more. So 
this this is an expanded edition. <laughs> I mean, I found the the simplified retelling of the story really helpful because each chapter I have to produce a hundred and fifty word summary. I know. And so what I would do is I would read your chapter and then summarize that, which is easier <laughs> than reading the original chapter. And so I, 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 I picked up on the things that you picked up on. It's like, oh. Excellent. So I found that really helpful. But at the same time, I think it will also be great to have something that will take people a little bit deeper and connect it a little bit more, particularly with the four loves. Sure, sure. Now, so far this season, we've got up to chapter 13 of Till We Have Faces. So this is when Psyche has returned from the mountain the first time and she's spoken to the fox and they've discussed what's happening on the mountain. And they conclude that whatever is coming to Psyche in the night is not good. So I just kind of wanted to give you just an open door. Is there anything that we've covered in the story up to this point that you would like to particularly talk about or draw our listeners' attention to? That uh, particular chapter where you're up to um, is fascinating to me because I think a lot of it hinges on Oral's choice to tell the truth. Yes. And... Although it doesn't happen in every chapter, you can trace the moments in Oral's life where she is making a conscious choice to see something, say something, or do something that affects and has this monumental consequence upon her life, though she doesn't quite know it. And um, I think the uh, just... The absolute dynamic power of choice is one of those things that stands out to me, whether it's literal or spiritual. That is something that you could talk about easily because, um, you know, it was a choice for her to wear the veil or to remove it when she first ascended the mountain with Bardia. Um, like I mentioned, you know, what uh, form of truth would she tell the fox later or anyone uh, what she says to Bardia is very limited and skewed, and um, and all of the time we're trying to decide <laughs> if she's telling us the truth. <laughs> exactly, how much of what she's even writing is correct. Right. The, the bit that really bothered me with the fox was the fact that that needed an explanation, and that would have changed the entire course of his reasoning, because he thinks that Psyche is mad, because she says that she's in this palace, Orwell didn't see it. As soon as you say, actually, no, I did catch a glimpse of it, mm -hmm. that now needs to be explained. Right. And so either Orwell is mad, and then you end up with that kind of Lewis's traditional trilemma. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, she isn't mad, so we've got to find some other explanation. Or we actually might have to open ourselves up to the possibility that what Psyche is saying is true. Right. Right. And so... um I think you guys touched on this on the previous week's podcast, but that idea of perception mm -hmm. and believing and seeing. Um, and I still think that ties to choice. You choose to see, you choose to believe it. Even faith itself is a choice. Um, and goodness, there's some tremendous quotes in there <laughs> with oral when, when she's speaking about those things and, Oh, she comes so close so close. And quite a few times, I was thinking about this yesterday, quite a few times, she just chooses not to think about some things mm -hmm. or just postpones it and then doesn't really come back to it. Like, yeah. 
she seems to skip over the fundamental question of how did Psyche get out of the tree? Mm-hmm. How, how is it that she looks so healthy? She just doesn't seem to want to take in that data. And then she doesn't pass on some of that data to the fox. And, you know, if you have incomplete information, you're almost certainly to reason incorrectly because you don't have everything that's pertinent. Yeah, and there's a, <laughs> there is a deep irony in her statements with Bardia because, you know, he's the one who has a true... Uh, fearful awe of the gods. And when he says that statement, you know, the less you meddle with the gods, the less they meddle with you, (laughs) you know, he's backing off. And yet her versions, her reinterpretations, even the hint that she saw the palace um, and that she's rewriting it as she's talking to me, she's meddling. Um, (laughs) She's meddling with the truth of what she saw and experienced. And, makes that choice to refuse it. Now, we actually had a listener write in and talk to us about the whole uh, weirdness of the Gloam religion. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and he, he basically argued that this is Lewis talking about the otherness, the, the, the holy. Uh, I was interested, how do your students react to this? Because, you know, they're, going, they're getting this good Christian classical education and you're spending all this time talking about pagan gods. What? <laughs> I think they've read enough Roman and Greek myth <laughs> and Babylonian and uh, other cultures already that um, the strangeness, it does not bother them. It doesn't at all. I mean, there's a little bit of reaction, um, a little bit of reaction when they talk about the temple and the blood sacrifices. Um, uh, the fact that the temple girls are, are painted the way they are and um, present themselves and the drugs all of that. <laughs> There's some reaction to that. Um, Parents coming in, who are reading a book about drugs and pagan worship. <laughs> this isn't what I pay my fees for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because um, it was, um, was your listener's name Scott? Do I remember that correctly? Yes. yes, I think it was Scott. Yeah, and that he was commenting on, it's like people need someone to explain what it is we're actually worshiping and no one's explaining it. <laughs> so it, 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 proves difficult um, that the pagan faith is a faith. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's unique. My students, like I said, that's early in the book. And so when Ungut's temple is first mentioned and um, a number of those scenes appear. And so in the literal sense, they're like, ew, but it keeps them (laughs) reading. (laughs) They want to know, how does this tie in? So, oh, and speaking of, that would be like another thing. this is probably more uh, the way my mind works, but I so appreciate um, the images that C.S. Lewis paints for us. And that is something that he has talked about with his fiction um, in so many places over the years. But that the idea that whenever he would write scenes, um, he would have pictures that came to him first. Mm-hmm. And this describes how first the picture would come and then a form would come, and then when the two would mesh, I knew I could proceed with the writing. And he talks about Narnia came to him that way and things like that. And I, uh, for some reason, that just stands out to me. Um, even in the first chapters, you can easily trace um, the actual physical. It's like your five senses are all employed because um, from the scene where Oral gets her hair cut off, um, when we talk about Ungut's house in chapter one, 
um, the wedding to the stepmother, all of these scenes, I mean, you can see them literally the way he's describing them and tying them in to her thought process and conversation. And in chapter two, um, when the stepmother dies in birth, um, that's the scene I call the red scene. <laughs> it's in my companion because it just stands out to me so much because the torches at night are flaring red. Um, there's wine being drunk, wine being given in sacrifice. Blood being spilt. Yes, blood and wine being spilt. And the king goes from the red rage to the pale rage. And there's this contrast. And then instantly almost you have the complete juxtaposition to Psyche's beautiful pale infant skin and her beauty. And um, it's such a, a dynamic thing to me. My mind just sees the color and um, that type of thing. And by the time um, you get up to the mountain and go over that black ridge, the saddle, and you're in the Edenic uh, area and uh, you guys commented on the, you know, the vividness of the green, the smell, the hum of the bees. I mean, just all of that, those scenes, those pictures, the imagery is just astounding to me. I enjoy it so much. Yeah, I know that Till We Have Faces is meant to be paired with The Four Loves, mm-hmm. but we did The Great Divorce last season. I and <laughs> it is really strong. Yes. There's, there's so many things that's, oh, well, this is sort of like an incident that happened here the, in the landscape, in some of the conversations, yes. some of them almost word for word. Mm-hmm. That is very true. And there's even some of the same parallels between the great divorce and the four loves with the examples that Lewis uses. And um, you recently mentioned, oh, it's the distorted type of affection with the mother. The, 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 the mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Mrs. Fidget example and the four <laughs> loves. They're the precise same. <laughs> the vicar says she is now at rest. We can certainly say that her family are. Right. So zooming out. What main piece of advice would you give to people reading Till We Have Faces for the first time? I've probably already said it, but learning from others as you read, I think is a splendid way to to actually understand what's happening. Um, Seeing different people's perspectives for the same chapters as you see in your book club. But then I would also just say, it's very obvious, take your time. And just read it slowly and carefully. <laughs> I'm laughing because I read this to my girlfriend at the end of every chapter. She goes, what? Okay, I'm going to read this. Or you have to read it to me now. I, I will not be able to wait. <laughs> and reading it out loud as you two are doing, it's a great way um, to read it slowly and um, to really notice things. I remember um, Andrew Lazo had said in his introductory episode, you know, there's something to... Every word and sentence, the word order, he's just like, all of it has meaning. (laughs) And he's working on, you know, uh, explicitly taking taking that apart. But I'm like, even sentence by sentence and rereading a part of a chapter as you go, there is nothing wrong with that. Excellent. Well, in the time we've got left, I'd just like to talk about uh, some of your other writing that I've seen on different websites. So over at the Imaginative Conservative, last year you wrote an article about Antigone. And listeners will recall that Antigone has been mentioned a couple of times in Till We Have Faces by the Fox and Orwell. Uh, So could you just please remind us of the story of Antigone and unpack what you were saying in that article? 
Yes. Well, Antigone's story is one of obedience, which ends up defying um, mortal or family standards. And that was the gods had demanded that the dead do not remain unburied. Um, the rites must be said and the, the dust sprinkled and the body burnt um, because they typically didn't bury <laughs> in the rocky soil in the Mediterranean region. And um, since her brother was left outside the city walls, she was determined to obey the gods. She just knew it, that she had to do it. And the resistance was, of course, she was defying her uncle and her sister, uh, her younger sister, was like, it's impossible. You can't try to do anything that impossible. You shouldn't do it. It's wrong. You need to obey. And <laughs> Antigone insisted, you have to obey the God's laws. I know I have to. And so the story continues. And I know you've summarized it a bit on um, several episodes. But um, <laughs> the odd thing is, I mean, there's no parallel to my life. <laughs> Not literally. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the reason I wrote about it is because... Um, the more I thought about it, and it's a play and a play cycle that I've taught many times, I realized that I actually related to her and that I saw, sort of saw a picture of myself in a number of her choices. And so that particular article really just talked about our shared humanity and that when I, I chose to go to a particular college against um what my school wanted and my school counselor wanted, I was just determined because I knew I needed to do it. And I just really felt the Lord impel me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I was like, well, that's not quite the same as Antigone willing to die <laughs> because she knew what was right. But there are these, these moments where I just saw um, some things that we shared in common. And she absolutely had... Um, such a strong faith. She did not waver at all. There was no back and forth. Should I do this? Should I not? I know that I will die. Yep. The king proclaimed it. I'll be, I'll be killed if they catch me. And, um, she was so, so full of faith. There's no other way to say it. <laughs> Wonderful. And last year you also wrote an article for Poema, which I thought was also relevant to our current reading of Till We Have Faces. Mm -hmm. It was about the relationship between Greek philosophy and Christianity. Yes. And um, what is fascinating, if you, uh, well, I have to ask you, have you read uh, Clement of Alexandria? Mm -hmm. Yes. The, the My introduction to the Church Fathers was through Clement, Ignatius, and then on to Justin and Clement of Alexandria. Yes. And... The thing that really captured my imagination regarding the Church Fathers was this interplay between Greek reason mm -hmm. and Jewish faith. Yes. And I was blown away when I found that you had Church Fathers writing and they, they saw the, the, the Greek philosophers as sort of an analog to the Hebrew prophets preparing for what was going to come. And this was the area where Christianity exploded in the areas that had been prepared by Greek philosophy. And they even went so far as to say bold things like people like Socrates and uh, other philosophers, they were unknowingly Christian because they grasped as much of God as they could. Yeah. Aristotle got really close as a lot of, <laughs> a lot of Christians would say, if once you read his metaphysics and his descriptions of the unmoved mover and the fact that he really did acknowledge that there is a single 
entity, a God out there that controls all of this and created all of this. He was really, really close <laughs> to knowing more. Um, but uh, regardless of that, yeah, Clement of Alexandria, uh, and at least the pieces I've read, he seems to be a bit controversial among his peers because he was arguing for this liberal, this generous education that Seneca talked about in the first century and Clement's like one or 200 years later. But he he believes in the foundation of um, the Greek philosophers and historians and everything that comes after them as being part of what is prepared for us to learn today, in addition to training um, children according to what's in Scripture and also following Jesus's model, because he he talks about Christ's example many times, too. And so the controversy was most people wanted to drop the Greeks, as you mentioned. They're like, oh, don't study the pagans. And we're like, look at that. This <laughs> this controversy existed. <laughs> it still exists today. <laughs> But the church fathers would say quite bold things like, well, if Christ is the Logos, then anything that is true is the property of us Christians. Yeah. <laughs> it seems kind of like wandering into an art gallery and, you know, that painting, it's mine. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you, you didn't buy it, you didn't pay it. No, it's, it's still basically mine. <laughs> yeah. And Augustine and Erasmus, you know, centuries later, they write the same thing. Hey, they paved the way. We'll take the truth we found and continue on. <laughs> but, um, I think in that particular article that I wrote, I, I was referring to one of his letters that he had written. And um, Clement, at that point, um, he was coming down on the Greeks, even though he was a Greek. And, <laughs> and um, but by the end of it, he started to sort of turn a corner and said, well, you know what? I do think it's not just they had a limited representation. And yes, we can. We can, in fact, learn from them. And um, even my Greek brothers today have a choice and a chance. And he sort of concedes last minute that, you know, we can all be children of God. But <laughs> he's a bit hesitant in his wording, which is really fascinating to read because you're like, what? what's his point? So <laughs> <laughs> some of it, I'm sure, was because of what was being discussed and the tax mm -hmm. he was under at the time. But yeah, it's definitely a, a real thread of polemics running yes. running through rather than just simply philosophy of what truth can we find outside of the revelation of God in Christianity. Right. But one thing I was going to ask, and that it relates to the fox, because I only know a little bit about Stoic philosophy, um, but he does seem to have some concept of the divine. It's just not the anthropomorphic gods of Zeus and Aphrodite even though he seems to keep thanking them in the text, which drives me potty. <laughs> yeah, I, the fox, I, you know what's really interesting is I think one of Lewis's essays on, uh, he talks about skepticism. I think it's like called the six categories of thought or modern thought. And he has a brilliant section on skepticism and reason and uh, what they look like today and how actually skepticism is not a disservice as you think it is. And um, that in itself, I mean, it's not just about the Stoic philosophy, because I think Stoicism might just be the convenient label if we're talking mm -hmm. about a Greek lean named the fox. But, 
you know, since so many people say the fox represents reason, and he himself talks about that at the end of the book coming. Um, Spoiler alert! <laughs> yeah, you don't need you don't need the stoic label. It's it's more broad than that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the final piece that I want to talk about was last month you wrote uh, for the Imaginative Conservative, and it was called "Remembering Our Reading," in which you kindly mentioned our podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of so course. what was that about? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I see, I mean, every year, a a number of writers, uh, go ahead and submit articles to whichever websites publish them and such about, you know, these are the top books that impacted me this year, or this was my focus in my reading. And, um, whether it's a philosophy or a social justice issue or something spiritual or not, or simply popular reading, you read plenty of those and, I didn't want to write an article like that because <laughs> it's been done thousands of times. So I was, um, I had listened to an episode of a podcast, Modern Mrs. Darcy, who um, she's been around for quite a bit for at least over five or six years, Ann Bogle. And um, she was talking with her readers and had asked them to email ahead of time different ideas for how to track what we write, but more than that, how do you want to remember it? And what's interesting and fascinating about it was there was a bit of dichotomy. Some some readers, male and female both, just literally want to make list and put a date beside it and say one or two things. Done. And that's all. <laughs> they just want the checklist. I read a book. Yep. I read 100 this year or five this year or that kind of thing. Um, but then there was another group of readers that really wanted to remember what they read at the time of life at which they read it. And that was the part that captured me because I was like, yeah, how do we do that? I'm on Goodreads and I, I click the box. I read another book and I'll write a brief review many times, but um, what do I actually remember about it? And so I was um, writing down some of the suggestions offered um, in that particular podcast and introducing them, hopefully, to the readers. And at the same time, it made me think about, well, I don't know if I have time to reflect upon everything, but uh, many, many people offered, you know, a simple journal, a regular spiral notebook where you write the date when you finish the book, or even as you read the book, write down a few quotes, write down what it meant to you at the moment, and um, take time with it, you know, reflect upon why did you choose to pick this up and spend time on someone else's words. And um, so to aid that, I, of course, had to list a number of podcasts. <laughs> I listen to podcasts in spurts. <laughs> I, I don't know that I'm consistently listening to anyone at any given time. And so um, a number of those from the Searcy Institute Network and the Center for Literature and the National Review and yours as well. I wanted to say, hey, these are the people that I personally have found valuable in the reading life um, to listen to, to help me reflect and hear perspectives from other people. And that made me really happy because, again, <laughs> this, is, this is part of what we want to do here, uh, to, to make the reading experience richer. So if somebody's you know, in a community in the middle of nowhere where they can't find anyone that wants to start a C.S. Lewis book club, right. they can read it along with us. Yes. And I will definitely say from recording this podcast, my reading goes much deeper when I'm reading a chapter or two and know I'm going to have to speak about it for 45 minutes to an hour and yes. say sensible things and interesting things. 
Yes, it definitely encourages careful reading. It does slow you down. And it, I think you also think about it differently if you're not just reading it to get it done. And the, I'm I'm purposely not reading ahead in Lewis's works. There's a whole bunch of them that I haven't read. Yes. Everybody always gets really shocked. What you haven't read? <laughs> Insert book here. It's like, no, that'll be season 15. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on Pints with Jack and talking to us about your book and your writings and Till We Have Faces. You are very welcome. And so to wrap up, where can people find out more about you and your work? Sure. Um, I'm very simple to find, christinenorval.com. You can sign up for a monthly newsletter if you'd like. Um, I always have a freebie. So my current freebie is a book list um, that I just compiled from Father James Shaw's um, many essays, but he always has numerous, dozens, hundreds of book lists for every category of reader, um, the intellectual and the curious, as he calls them. And um, so that's the current one at the moment. But at the same time, if you sign up for my newsletter, um, as the second edition rolls out here in the next two months, I'll also be giving away copies and you won't know about it unless you're on the newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, listeners, please join us next week when we're going to be looking at chapters 14 and 15 and we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.